0: Please turn with me to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 13 in preparation for the Lord's Supper. I remind you that last week we looked at Exodus chapter 5, the latter part of it, and we've been uh, grappling with this story, this crisis in Israel's history. Not only are they enslaved and just on the on the edge of their release, they get this even worse news that their slavery has gotten harder. Because Moses asked for, demanded their release, Pharaoh came down on them with even greater oppression, withholding from them the hay that he typically provided for their making of bricks. And uh, they were to gather their own materials then, but they were still supposed to meet the same quota. And they turn on, they turn on Moses. Moses turns on God. And we said, it's just like us. And this is a, this is a, this is a common theme in Scripture that God brings us to the end of ourselves, brings us to a need. And then our first reaction tends to be to default to some false savior the Savior of work, we're going to work harder and get ourselves out of this, or we're going to turn to shame, we're going to, we're going to uh, endure enough punishment that we'll somehow atone for this problem and get ourselves out of it, or we turn to blame, blaming others, somehow that's going to save us. The only salvation, of course, is the one who is promised in this passage in, in all the Bible, and that is in Jesus Christ. He is the one who has done the work for us. He is the one who's relieved us of our shame. He is the one who has taken the blame of our sins on himself. But I want you to see something else that might surprise you in this text as God finds you with it. What do you do when you can't believe that? Let's begin reading in verse 1 of Exodus chapter 6. But the Lord said to Moses, now that's an important statement, because the last thing that Moses said to God was, why have you done this evil to us? Why have you sent me here? Now maybe you think in your heart you've said something similar to God, and what would God's response be? What do you expect him to say to you? Do you expect him to reject you? Do you expect him to condemn Moses? Here is what the Lord said to Moses. Moses, but the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they live as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. O Lord, would you open our eyes to see, not only to see but believe, to really believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God loves sinners that God has provided the once-for-all atonement for our sins, that God relieves us through Jesus of our need to work, to shame, to blame. Oh, Lord, get a name for Yourself in our hearts this day. We pray it in the strong name of Jesus and for His sake. And God's people said, Amen. From time to time, my children, when they were very young got sick, and when the strong-willed ones got sick, which would be three-quarters of them, 75% of them, when the strong-willed ones got sick, we had to take them to the doctor, and it was was a wrestling match. And uh, they would protest, I'm not going, Daddy. Okay, I would say, as I picked them up and took them out the door I don't want to go to the doctor daddy I know as I strapped them into the car seat I'm not going I'm going to run away okay I would say as I put the car in drive and drove to the doctor I'm not setting foot in that doctor's office I know I know as I carried them in to the doctor's office I'm not going to see the doctor I know I know here he is He's not going to give me a shot, I know. And I hold him down. (laughs) We left. They eventually were healed, despite their protestations, despite their strong will, despite their ability at that moment to believe that what was being done for them and to them and through them, to them, was really going to result in their healing. Though they could not believe it, they received it. There are some of you gathered this morning hoping this will be the day that you believe that the gospel is as good as Jesus says it is. Some of you have never given your life to Christ because it's just too good to be true. You keep defaulting to work and shame and blame. Others of you have given your lives to Christ, and you've walked with Christ for many years, but you struggle with assurance, and you struggle day by day, you struggle week by week to believe in an emotional depth, to really believe in a visceral way that the news is as good as Jesus says it is. And you're tempted to think that until you can get that assurance, until you can work up that kind of faith, that until you can cure that defective thinking, that you just cannot be his child or you cannot be a child that he approves or even uses. I want you to see in this passage that all the while, the Father, through the Son, by means of the Holy Spirit, is carrying you where you need to go." He makes that point to us in three ways through this passage, two of them explicitly, the third one theologically. He makes it by reminding us that He is the one who makes promises. I will, he says seven times in the passage. He exposes where we say, I can't, and Jesus is the one who assures us He will. Verses 1 through 8, you see those seven I wills. I tried to emphasize them as I read. Seven times God says, I will. Now, why is He saying this? He's saying this to Moses. What has Moses said to God? You are to blame for this. You have done evil to us. They can't believe me, and I can't believe that you are going to do what you say you're going to do. And God responds not with correction. God responds not with upbraiding, not with condemnation, not with punishment. God responds with seven I wills. And those seven I wills can be grouped in three categories. Three theologically rich words used throughout Scripture, redemption and possession and liberation. Redemption, I will bring them out, verse 6. I will bring them out, I will free them, I will redeem you. Redemption in the Old Testament world was uh, that act of ransoming someone out of bondage with a price. It was to pay a ransom so that someone was liberated. Or freed from their, from their slavery. Moses made provision for it in Leviticus chapter 25. Hosea purchased his wife Gomer out of prostitution, out of human trafficking. Uh, Paul offered to pay Onesimus for, or Philemon, for Onesimus the slave. Promise to pay the ransom price. The difference is that when God uses the word redemption, when he says, I will redeem you, yes, he always pays a price, but God's price is always blood. Because when God purchases us back from captivity, he is buying someone made in his image. And there's no currency that could be accumulated that would equal our worth. He has to give He had to give his own blood. This is the flock of God, Paul said. This is the flock of God. The church of Jesus Christ is the flock of God purchased with God's blood. It is the blood of Jesus. It's anticipated in this this act of redemption from, from Egypt because it was only, it was not until a lamb's blood was shed that the people of Israel were released from their bondage redemption the next thing he says to Moses lack of faith and to the people's inability to believe he says you are my possession I will make you my own people I will be your God he is our again using Old Testament language our kinsman redeemer to purchase a kinsman a A kinsman out of bondage required that the nearest of kin would have to pay that price. God became man that he might pay that ransom price and make us his possession. God doesn't redeem us and say, now stay over there because I don't want to be near you. I'm I'm sick and tired of you. I've paid enough for you already. He pays the price for us and then calls us his children and brings us near to himself and then announces to everyone, even his enemies in the cosmos. He he introduces us as his children. Then he says, by means of these I wills, I will liberate you. Verse 8, I will bring you into the land. I will be your possession. He makes us to thrive. God doesn't merely save us to enter into a life of survival. He saves us that we might flourish, that we might thrive. He wants life to go well with us. He makes all things new. He creates joy. He gives peace that passes all comprehension. It will never be perfect in this life. That thriving, that flourishing, some will seem to flourish more than others. It may be that you never are permanently assured in this life of your salvation. That's not a condition of salvation. But that perfect thriving and flourishing is promised. It is promised in glory. It is where he's taking you. There are moments when he gives you a peek into it. He opens the curtains. He lets you feel it. He lets you experience it. He allows you to know that you know that you're a child of God. But just because it's not permanent does not mean that you are not his and you're not on his road. You're not on his pilgrimage. Some of you continue to Struggle. Despite this good news, despite this good news, you and I continue to struggle to believe it and it's no different from these in our text. You, you notice this, this verse tucked in in verse 9, after Moses repeated to the people what God had told to him, seven I wills, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. But they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Now, our our text, the, the particular translation we're using, just repeats basically the Hebrew, which was, they heard not Moses. Though he said seven times, God says I will redeem you, I will make you my own, I will liberate you, they heard not. Other translations interpret, and we have to do that from time to time in translating Scripture, some say they would not listen to Moses. I'm not an Old Testament scholar, but I suggest that the translation could be, They could not hear Moses. Now, even if that's not the right translation of that passage, it's theologically correct. The Bible makes it clear that we cannot believe on our own. You are dead, he says in Ephesians 2, Paul says in Ephesians 2, you are dead, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then later in chapter 2, he says, it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. That faith even is not of yourselves. Not by works so that no one may boast. Other places indicate that faith is always a gift. Faith is something that must be received. Saving faith itself is a gift. So it is theologically true that it is impossible for us who have been born as in under the fall. It's impossible for us to generate saving faith. It must be given to us as a gift. And if it's been given to us as a gift once, then it must be given to us as a gift continually, as every other grace of the Christian life is. So it is impossible. It is is true that you cannot believe you by yourself without aid Neither can I, we cannot believe it must be given to us and it is a gift that God delights to give. And again, the theological point must be given that is not in this text. It comes that the Holy Spirit's work comes later in the book of Exodus. The Holy Spirit is described later in the book of Exodus as one who changes the mind, who, who changes the will, who enables us to think correctly. And the New Testament makes that clear, that it is the Holy Spirit who by the same power with which he raised Jesus from the dead, who moves in us and enables us to believe and gives life even to our mortal bodies, which includes our emotions. It is the Holy Spirit who gives us faith. So if it's theologically true that these could not believe, what was the very particular reason they could not believe? None of us can believe, but there are different reasons. There are different uh, additional reasons in in addition to our original sin. There are different additional reasons we cannot believe. Let me... Recall this for you, first of all, it's something that happened to a friend of mine 20 years ago to to illustrate before I make the point. 20 years ago, my best friend's mother, who was an ebullient person, she was a contagiously joyful person, she was absolutely hilarious, she was the life of the party, she too was my friend, and 20 years ago, she developed a pain in her stomach. And it was, it was so intense, she went to the physician. The physician treated the symptom. But then the pain moved around, and the, the pain got more intense in other places of her body as well. So she went back to the physician, and he treated those symptoms too with pain medication. She reacted to the pain medication, and she became despondent. She went back to the physician. The physician said it's psychosomatic. In other words, it's defective thinking. If you just think differently, your body will be cured. She became even more despondent, because no matter what she tried, she couldn't make herself think differently. She went to another physician, finally, who ran some tests, and she discovered that they discovered she had a, a parasite that she probably contracted from foreign travels. They treated that parasite, that infection, with powerful antibiotics. And within a number of months, maybe many months, she was back to herself. The point is that sometimes the presenting symptoms, the the explanation for the presenting symptoms is not very obvious and it's, it's deep and it requires patient diagnosis. And long-term, powerful treatment. Yes, it is true that just like we confess in the Shorter Catechism by original sin, we cannot believe on our own. But there are additional reasons too. There are additional reasons that you cannot believe, even perhaps as a Christian. And maybe they're the same, similar to what these Hebrew slaves experienced. Broken spirit and harsh slavery. Trauma. Maybe it's because you've been traumatized by something in the past or continually so. We've learned a lot in the last 20 years about trauma and its effect on the brain. Flooding the brain with hormonal changes that permanently wound the brain so that That things that wouldn't trouble other people can trigger us into trauma. Remembering something that was difficult for us or frightening or terrifying for us in the past. Maybe you feel permanently discouraged because of something, not that you have done, but something that has been done to you. That's a statement from Bonnie Martin who has taught me a lot about trauma and its effect on people. She tells those she works with as a Christian counselor, it's not something wrong with you, something wrong has been done to you. Maybe a spouse has rejected or is rejecting you. A parent has abused you physically or emotionally. A coach has shamed you. Society has told you, whatever society it is, that you are the wrong color or the wrong ethnicity. A nation condemns your city like Memphis. Or a teacher said you're stupid. Or a pastor said God rejected you. Israel's slavery was 430 years in the making. Should it surprise us? that it's taken God hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years to repair it. Your abuse or rejection of the trauma you've suffered may have occurred many years ago or has occurred for many years, and you think it should be cured overnight. I do not have any quick fixes for your or my wounds. Just this, God understands it. We've been trained in the church to understand how to, how to apply the first point I made, the seven I wills. We, we must believe them. But we haven't talked so much about how to believe when you can't believe. And to acknowledge that God knows and God is patient with your wounds And God is the one who carries you and enables you when you protest, when you accuse him of evil, when you say you cannot believe. You may be discouraged that way. Maybe you are in the midst of an emotional and cruel bondage now. Cruel bondage like these Israelites, you're not physically in bondage, but you're in an emotional bondage that is nonetheless cruel. And it can, it can change the way you think, or it can prohibit you from thinking the way you ought. Those who study, those who study uh, traumatized people describe uh, their, their, uh, their inability to take action as tonic immobility, see it in animals, a deer in the headlights. A tonic immobility that someone freezes. You've seen footage perhaps of of an active shooter where someone freezes. And you're standing on the outside, outside of that danger. You might say to that person, what are they thinking? Why don't they get out of the way? Why don't they remove themselves from the danger? They can't. They're immobilized. You may have a faith immobility, you've been traumatized by someone who intended evil or by an evil force or just the way life happens and you're immobilized in your faith. I cannot believe, I've seen it in people I've admired greatly convinced me that it's possible. One of my professors in seminary was, was such a holy man that we, we often joked that he was going to be like Enoch. The day was going to come when he wouldn't die. He would just walk straight into heaven. He was a man who had memorized most of the, all of the New Testament, memorized much of the Old Testament. He bled Scripture. I was his pastor too, eventually. When his wife of 70 years died and he moved into a long-term care facility, he called me one day and he said, George, I've lost my faith. I'm no longer a Christian. I couldn't believe the words coming out of his mouth. I went and sat at the feet of my teacher and I listened to him express his panic and his fear and his shame. And he could not believe. Well, his, he had been wounded. He had been wounded by the loss of his wife, had been wounded by transferring, uh, transitioning into a place that was unfamiliar to him. His emotions were lying to him. He was still a Christian. My elders anointed him with oil, put their hands on him and prayed for him to be able to believe and over the course of months as people continued to bring him into the fellowship of our church, as he he just sat among us, the Lord carried him, awakened him again, the man who's done more to counsel me than anyone else one day called me and said he'd because he'd had a head injury he said I can't believe all I can do is repeat the apostles creed and that's what he did he repeated the apostles creed it's a good strategy it's also a good strategy to repeat to the lord what he says about you even when you don't believe it Last, year, last week I told you to use those scripts expressing anger from the Old Testament. The anger to God. God gives you those as scripts. Well, God also gives you scripts about yourself. He says about you, you are the apple of my eye. You are my beloved. You are my possession. You are my people. I am your God. I will yet praise him. Say those things to the Lord. I am the apple of your eye. I am the one for whom you died. I am the one for whom you died, and therefore I am not condemned. Say those things back to him until he enables you to believe them. Even if you don't believe them for a long time, you must still, with your sanctified imagination, imagine he is carrying you when you cannot believe. Well, how does He do it? How does God make up for the faith that you cannot create on your own? He does it through Christ, who brings that faith to you through the Holy Spirit. I want you to remember those I wills that I mentioned earlier, those seven I wills. I want you to listen to them as I read them back to you. And then I want to show you how they are each fulfilled by Jesus Christ. There are seven I will statements in the book of John, just as there are seven I will statements in this chapter from Exodus. And here is how Jesus fulfilled them. God said in Exodus 6, verse 6, I will bring you out. Jesus said in John ten nine, I am the door. God said, I will free you. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. God said, I will, receive, I will redeem you. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The Father said, I will take you as my people. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. God said, I will be your God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. God said, I will bring you into the land. Jesus said, I am the true vine. And God said, I will give it to you as a possession. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life, take and eat. The end of Philip Yancey's book, Disappointed with God, he talks about in that book, it's autobiographical in many ways, his struggle with the goodness of God and the struggle with suffering He said one day as an adult, his mother called him and said that she'd found an old photo, a crumpled photo, and she gave it to him. It was a photo of himself as a child. He didn't understand the significance of it, and she explained that his father had contracted polio when he was very young. He never remembered his father. And in those days, they were put in those long body-length iron lungs, and that's where he stayed for most of his time. He never got to see his son or his, uh, his two sons, or his his wife, and so to encourage him in those long hours of the day, she, Philip Yancey's mother, taped pictures above the iron lung so that her, her husband could remember his wife and children. Yancey said he wondered what his father thought as he looked at those photos. What was he doing? Was he praying for him? What's was he feeling love for him? Surely he must have, he said, and it, it washed over him. That, that idea that someone was loving him when he wasn't aware of it washed over him with the same kind of peace that was produced when he first became a Christian. He realized that is who Christ has been for him too. That even when he was not able to see, even when he was not able to believe, when he was not able to really, really believe it, Jesus loved him. Jesus was carrying him. And Jesus was getting him home. If Christ has never been your faith, You've never given your life to Christ. You've never just said, take me as your own. May this be the day. And may you come close to this table and look at one who through these humble elements comes very close to you time and time again. And reaches out to you to pull you in. If you doubt today. Don't let those doubts be the lies of the evil one to keep you in the pew and say, I can't come to the table because I'm not worthy of the table. This, this table has nothing to do with your worth. This table is everything about what Jesus has provided and what he continues to provide. He is the one who continues to be the I will to your I can't. And he says, come to me and let me touch you in a physical way that I might that I might convince you in a visceral, existential way that I've done it all. And I'm going to take you home. This, this supper, together with the preaching of the gospel, these are the deeply powerful antibiotics that you need for your infection, my infection of unbelief.